You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. returns it is the halloween season and so in honor of that we bring you lots of well just a mix there's really some horror movies in here but you know it's it's a digital noise we talk about all the (laughs) stuff that comes out but we do have some spoopy stuff by the way do you have any idea who first did that because that annoys me yes really the spoopy thing yes i just read about it it was somebody someone tracked it down yes there's an entomology of the spoopy thing and it came from some photo somebody shared of some signage or something where somebody had moved the P into where the K was and it said spoopy. And then that photo got shared and then people just started saying spoopy. So, yeah. Wow. I, okay. I'm shocked. I honestly expected not to have an answer there, but like, there's an answer. You should find and kill that person. There's an answer. <laughs> it's one of those words that for whatever reason annoys me in the same way that people saying corny dog instead of corn dog. What? <laughs> I didn't know that you were, I didn't know you had an aversion to corny dog. I don't know why. It just bugs me. And apparently that's a Texas thing. My only deal is, is when people say Popeye as yeah. pie pie. As the word pie twice, and they say, pie pie. Oh, it's pie pie the sailor man. That drives me bananas. <laughs> I've never heard anybody do that, but now when I if I do hear it, I'm immediately, my ire is going to get raised. <laughs> In honor of your raised ire, <laughs> Thank sir. you. Said sir is John Golson joining me this week to talk about all these movies. And wow, do we have a lineup of cool stuff. Plus, we have the first in-house Digital noise giveaway we've done in a very long time, but I'm not going to tell you what it is till we get to it. So, uh, and in fact, it doesn't even say it on the text of the thing. I want it to be a surprise. Basically, what's going to happen is the first person who replies with nothing but a photo or, I'm sorry, like a photo or GIF in the comments on the actual uh, one of us page of from the, from the thing in question will win it. But you have to be, uh, in the United States of America to win it for me to ship it because I'm, don't have enough money to send it overseas. Sorry. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. But anyway, let's go to our first movie, which is Solo, a Star Wars story. Did you see the, uh, uh, the oh, I forget what they call it, where they were able to morph p- other people's faces? No, I saw that that. I saw that people. I saw that video get shared, but I didn't watch the video. I, I mean, it's really short because I, you know I assume that most of it looks looks terrible. But like they usually do, most of it scenes in shadow. But putting Harrison Ford's face onto the actor's face in those scenes, and it's like there's the moment it gets to you a little. You feel that little itch. Of, God, I wish there was a way you could actually do the whole movie like that. They could have. <laughs> yeah, they they could have. But you know, which isn't to say that I think that Alden. Aaron Reich is bad in this. I don't think he's bad in this. He's never for a second makes me go, that's Han Solo. And that's my deal. It's the, it's the, so when I think about Star Trek 2009, Mm -hmm. it's not whether or not they do an impression. It's sort of like, do they capture the energy? Do I buy that person as that character? Chris Pine, 100% Captain Kirk. Mm -hmm. Zachary Quinto, like, 60, 55% Leonard Nimoy Spock. Like it, he, I never, he, I know he's Spock because he's, he's written to be Spock. That's who he is. That's who his character is. He has a point ears. He's wearing the uniform, but never do I get the feeling when I'm watching him like, Ooh, I am watching Spock. Okay. And that's kind of like my deal with him is just like, 
he's fine. He's yeah. a capable leading man, and never, not once when I'm watching the movie do I go like, that's Han Solo. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I completely agree. Although I do think Donald Glover pretty much dead on and, nails and again, Lando. Yeah, and there's somebody who I do read as Lando. Like, when he shows up, I'm like, that feels right. Well, He, he feels I, like Lando. It felt like he really studied the cadences of Billy D. Williams' voice. Like, you hear him at first, and you're like, Jesus Christ, that sounds like Billy D. Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alden is playing him kind of a little too hyper or something. You know, he's very, he's almost nerdy. If you will, and and Han always has a sort of like laconicness to him in all of the films that just isn't present here, and I feel like that's the big missing gap. But that being said, I mean, come on, it is what it is. There's no way they were going to get Harrison Ford at like eighty something years old to come in and play like young Han Solo. I was like, sure, okay, why not? Um, not like that he will ever return for a Star Wars thing again. I think he, we could safe to say he's done. Um, but for this one being what it is, which was a very troubled film in production, to be sure, originally mm-hmm. shot by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, and then they were kicked off the film by Kathleen Kennedy, and then they brought in Ron Howard, who reportedly, like, 80% of the film was completely reshot. Did you did you watch Director and the Jedi? Oh, no, I still haven't watched that yet. Uh, that's on The Last Jedi, I believe. Yeah, right? and you get a real sense, you get a better sense of Lord and Miller's conflict, which is that there's so many moving pieces, so many locations, and so many departments that have to stick to a very strict schedule and anything that throws the schedule off throws everything off. Yeah. And you get that sense in director and the Jedi very clearly. And it lets you, it gives you a better understanding of why they weren't allowed to tinker with improvisation or play around or like, let's keep filming so that we can try to capture something. Any of the rumors that were coming out as to why it simply comes down to budget and schedule because any, any playing around like that would have affected departments all over the world. Um, it, it was interesting. Yeah. They just had never worked on a project that was that big of a machine. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Um, I, I certainly would have been very curious to see what they would have come up with if, if the system had permitted for that sort of thing to go on. But I think one of my big problems here is that the acts are all so separate and their own thing. The first act, second act, and third act feel like their own little mini movies almost. Mm-hmm. And they all, all three have a very different tone from each other. Uh, and I'm kind of the whole first act introducing Woody Harrelson uh, and his band of characters and then almost immediately killing all of them off was like, well, I was just starting to like those people. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you? Okay. I mean, especially Thandie Newman, Newton, you're like, oh, you have a woman of color in a Star Wars film. That's great. And she's dead. And you barely gave her any dialogue to begin with. And, she, you know, I, I'm like just kind of baffled by that. I also kind of thought the uh, the the comedy robot, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, uh, L337, voiced by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I get it. They're trying to do like a like a a nod to the tone of today's like just bigger discussions about equal rights and me too and what have you. And is, but in star Wars, it just felt odd in the middle of it. It just felt very crowbarred in as a joke. I don't know if you felt the same way. on I, that. Uh, I didn't. Um, I, I felt like they were trying to address a larger star Wars question of how much autonomy do droids actually have. Mm-hmm. And I felt like they were trying to touch on that without actually answering that. Yeah. Um, and then there's like a, there's like a one liner or two that, that are a little anachronistic. Um, but I, I did not necessarily have, uh, 
My deal is like kind of if you're going to bring it up, then give us some sense of clarity and finality on how droids operate in the Star Wars universe. But I don't feel I feel like it just clouded the issue even more. Yeah. Um. So I'm sort of like, well, then why even why even go there if you're not going to give us a direct answer of like, no, these are all like intelligent, independent thinking creatures. They are, you know, you know, they're. All self-aware. They're only I mean, being held back by restraining bolts, apparently. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, that that whole thing and the whole rebellion of the droids felt like a very... And I know for some people this is a positive, but I felt like like a latter-day George Lucas thing to add to the movie. Yeah. You know, it's just so goofy. Because if they are free thinkers, then it brings in questions of allegiances to rebel or uh, empire. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, well, how do they decide? Because it's easier to go, oh... Rebels own these droids, which is why they fight for the rebellion, and the Empire owns these droids, which is why they're in the service of the Empire. It's more difficult to go, they're all free thinkers, and some of the droids... Even that doesn't make sense, because it's like, Luke buys R2 and 3PO, and yeah, he just he lucked out that they're good, I guess? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, it brings up stuff that it's like there's no clear... It complicates the Star Wars world more than it probably intended well, that, to. That's the whole force just manipulating everybody, this mm-hmm. Luke ending up with them, right? I, I've gotten to the point where I feel like the force is that old dude in the second Matrix film, you know? <laughs> the engineer, or whatever yeah. it was called, who's just like, he's just this dude fucking with everybody. He's like, yeah, maybe I'll do this now. It's like, oh, I'm gonna do make something really shitty happen to this guy but i thought he was like the hero the good guy is like yeah but you know that'd be boring just to let everything stay normal force must be balanced my ass more like the force needs to not be bored <laughs> um i do think the whole second act is strong as shit in this movie and arguably one of the best acts in any of the new star wars films the whole castle run bit is so much fun to watch it does beg the question, though, why Han spent his whole life bragging about how fast he did it and not brag about, hey, I murdered Space Cthulhu, <laughs> which yeah. I feel like has got more bragging rights. <laughs> but th- that's a cool sequence. Yeah, I liked uh, – I I went in um, – I wouldn't say mixed. I, I, I went into this like I was not particularly – um, it was the first Star Wars film I had r- no real level of anticipation for. Mm. Um, and as w- as the box office proved, neither did the rest of America. Like, right. Because it didn't even open well. It wasn't a matter of like, oh, it opened, people didn't like it, and then it tanked. It was just sort of like everyone seemed to have a general disinterest in seeing a, a non-Harrison Ford solo solo movie. Yeah. Um, oh, and arguably a general disinterest with Star Wars prequels. Yeah. You know, I mean, Rogue One performed well, but it was also not about any of the other previously existing characters. Yeah. You know, sitting, sitting down for this one was like, I went in with, with little to no expectations and it ended up really like, and I'm not a Ron Howard guy either. I should preface that too. Cause I find him workmanlike to a fault. Yeah. I feel like his movie making comes from a place of watching other movies and it doesn't feel like his movie making ever comes from a place of, uh, of like from his soul. Yeah. Um, agreed. He's a great collaborator in a big group of people trying yeah. to put on a big Hollywood film. But what he brings to it is making sure that all the clocks are running on time. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not sure what else he's bringing. And to sometimes, it. sometimes he has lucked into scripts because he, he, it's always going to meet some kind of level of polish. And then it's sort of like whatever script is inserted into his hands is going to make him rise or fall. Like to me, Frost Nixon 
which the script is written almost like a sports movie where it's like you see these two fighters, quote unquote, like prepare for their fight. I love that from him. Yeah. Um, great movie, but that's largely because you're watching two of the great actors yeah. like, like reciting dialogue in a situation that was generally pretty fucking exciting even when it happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with Solo, I thought he... I thought he made a capable Star Wars film. Um, you know, watching it in 4K, I I did not get this feeling in the theater because it's so dark in a theater. Mm. And I had heard the complaints about the cinematography before I saw it in the theater, uh, and didn't have. I thought it looked fine watching it in a you know the big IMAX screen and it's pitch black in there except for what's on the screen. Mm-hmm. Watching it at home, oh boy, like it was not a it. it <sighs> The, the general, like, it looks overcast all the time, and everything is kind of shot not in a black shadow, but, like, in gray shadows. Yeah, I forget the guy's name, the cinematographer, but apparently he is the guy you get when you want, uh, let's see here, uh, Bradford Young. He is known for very dreary, sort of overcast, mm-hmm. like, shooting, like, a, like, a, like blues and grays. I was like, okay, for it, a Star Wars film? It is not one of the better movies that I own in 4K. It is, uh, it, it... It's very dreary, and honestly, those kind of like gray shadows sort of make your eyes tired as well. Um, mm-hmm. when there's no contrast like that. Oh, same guy uh, shot Arrival. Okay, which is also all like very dreary, very overcast, yeah, <laughs> very cloudy. Yeah, I can see that. I, I still don't have a 4K TV, although maybe this Christmas we'll see. <laughs> uh, my wife and I are, 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 are casting hints at, at her parents. <laughs> like, we sure could use one. See those lines on the TV? Yeah, those won't go away now. So, uh, you know, we yeah, since I'm a film critic, I should probably have a good TV, right? Anyway, l- l- let's just go to, though, the extra features, of which there are a lot here, like there traditionally are. Uh, one of which is probably the most anticipated was the round table with director Ron Howard and with the, the main cast all sitting around for 21 minutes and and talking about various experiences on making this film. Um, uh, did you get a chance to watch that? I did not watch that one. Uh, I can't remember which I, I dipped into a couple of them, but I didn't, I was, I wanted a comprehensive uh, documentary feature like I, like previous star Wars releases have mm-hmm. had. And, and again, I may have been spoiled by the director and the Jedi, which is honestly like standalone, just an excellent documentary on filmmaking. Right. Um, so I've heard. Yeah. So I, I looked around for that and then I think I went through a couple things and was like, oh, this doesn't have that big exhaustive doc. So I didn't, I didn't dig deep. It is divided up into a bunch of featurettes. There's Kazdin on Kazdin, which is Lawrence and his son John talk about life with the franchise. Uh, there is a, a remaking the Millennium Falcon, which of course is talking about rebuilding. The ship for this movie and a new looking one, of course. Escape from Corellia, which talks about the timeline and how he fits, Solo fits in the world. And of course, the big car chase scene there, which I thought was one of the poorest looking sequences of the whole film. There's a lot of like, wow, those like, there's a scene where they hit a stormtrooper and he flies in the air and it has that rubber doll effect thing. Yeah. We're like, yeah, y'all could have done that better. That's not even that hard of a thing to, to do in CG. And it feels like this is just unfinished. There's the train heist, which does look great a feature ad on that uh team chewy which talks about like introducing chewy into the star wars world becoming a droid about l337 scoundrels droids creatures and cards welcome to fort yipso which uh looks about 
that whole sequence with, you know, the droid fights and when they meet Lando. Into the Maelstrom, the Kessel Run, which looks into all the how, – how they shot that whole space race scene, which is, like I said, my favorite sequence in the whole film. And there's 15 minutes and 13 seconds of deleted scenes, none of which are essential, but, like, some are just barely extended sequences and others are kind of fun to watch. Um, but I think overall this film got kind of a bad rap. Um, I like it about as much as I like all the other Star Wars films with the ex- uh, of the new releases, with the exception of Last Jedi, which is my favorite. Like I st- definitely way head head heads above all the rest of them for my money. But everybody seems to have their own answer for that. It's weird how not continuous which people's favorite of the new Star Wars films are and least favorites. If I was taking this and ranking them i would probably i'm probably last jedi force awakens solo rogue one uh if i was just but that doesn't mean that i don't like solo yeah i've enjoyed um, all of them to one extent yeah. or another and i like well even rogue one which i'm not hugely hot on i really like the final battle a lot in rogue one i do too um, yeah, solo's solo's good. I don't know why it didn't. I don't know why it failed. Oh, I I do. I I have theories as to why it failed to connect. But it certainly, I felt kind of sorry for it in a weird way. It's weird to think of a Star Wars film as like a box office underdog. Yeah. But I kind of felt like in regards to like this summer was really weird. And in regards to like sitting down and for a like an action packed film with like laughs and big effects and stuff like that. Like I thought Solo accomplished all of the things that it it set out to do, so it was a real shame that audiences kind of uh, snubbed it. Yeah, and, and I, a shame. I'm talking about a franchise that's like a billion dollar franchise. Well, yeah, they're not. They're, it, I mean, they'll they will recover. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. certainly have enough other projects and uh, going on. And I'm kind of glad, despite. The fact that, like, I, I think it's a shame it did is that people snubbed it as much as they did because uh, it's, like, as we said, not really a bad movie at all. But i kind of glad at the same time because it feels like that's going to veer them mm-hmm. away from doing more of this sort of, well, now let's see the origin of all these other characters yeah. and more focus where they should be focused on that new Ryan Johnson trilogy that will have absolutely nothing to do with the Skywalker series, yeah. which is what I'm much more interested in seeing at this point. Like, I want to see what happens a thousand years from now. Yeah, one of the one of the only negative feelings I have about Solo is the that it was obviously set up for sequels, hmm. and there there won't be. I'm yeah. assuming they're going to try to shoehorn some of the stuff that was left off at the end of this into other movies. Yeah, I had already agreed. heard rumors that. Uh, like I think I heard rumors the week that Solo opened that it might be a case of them moving some of the storyline over into like the whatever the Boba Fett solo film is or right. what have you. Well, are they? Is that I'm not even sure that's still no, happening. that's still because it sounds like now yeah. they've got that TV show The Mandalorian, which isn't about Boba Fett, but it's about a guy who dresses up just like him. <laughs> yeah, and maybe the, and maybe they'll address some of the solo stuff there. Yeah, maybe so. so. Uh, so our next uh, review is for a re-release of an older film, but now in 4K. And I've been meaning to watch this film again since it originally came out because me and my best friend, Martin Thomas, from DoubleToasted.com, he, if I remember this correctly, he really liked this movie. I didn't care for it at all. This movie is Punisher Warzone. And other people have told me how much they enjoyed this movie. And I was like, was I just in a bad mood? I'm going to try this again. And rewatching this, I got to say, I still don't like this movie. You still straight up don't like it? I, I mean – it's the best of the Punisher films, I think. I mean, it's been a while since I watched the other ones, too. <laughs> Although, I think the Dolph Lundgren one is coming soon. Or, no, the Thomas Jane one is coming soon. But uh, So I'll get a chance to rewatch that. Ugh. But there's just so much about this that is 
I, they're, they're trying straight up to make more of a sort of horror movie Punisher film. It's super gory. It's like way over the top. And nothing ever about it except for, and I can't believe I'm saying this, uh, Ray Stevenson's performance ever rings true for me. I think Ray Stevenson is fantastic as the Punisher in this. He's a great choice. He knows exactly how to play this character. I have no problems with him in the film. I do have a big problem with Dominic West's Jigsaw, who I think is just laughably ridiculous and not threatening in the slightest. He look, His makeup looks awful. Yeah, I get you. I get. I'm guessing that you really like this film from your response. I, I think this film is is uh, dumb. Um, <laughs> I think when I first saw it, I thought it was trying to have it both ways and be really, really dumb and really, really cool. And when I watched it the second time, I think like whatever was supposed to be cool, kind of like it, it no longer felt like. It was trying to be cool to me. I just embraced the, the dumb. Yeah, I saw it theatrically and then and then watched it again recently, and I just got into it more. I thought the colors it was garish. It's garish and stupid. Um, <laughs> it is that. That but is it very was true. never not. It's kind of never not moving forward, and uh, there was something about it this time that it just caught me in the right mood. Like mm. it, I would not defend it. Like it's sort of. Um, just, it's still sort of fundamentally terrible. It still feels like there are actors in the film who feel like they're in a completely different film from each other. And I'm not even talking about Dominic West, but like some of the cops as well. Right. Feel like they're in completely like soap feels like he's from a straight up comedy, <laughs> but none of the other policemen do. Um, but, but I, and, and then like, uh, what's her name what? from, uh, Dexter? Oh yeah. Uh, Julie Benz. Oh my gosh. And she's, she is like. Up a creek without a paddle in that movie as an actress, like yeah. she kind of does like a New York accent, and it's not she's not great. No, it's um, it's it is a it's a mess. But if you know, oh, and Wayne Knight uh, Newman as as microchip, microchip yeah. that's that's just odd casting across the board for yeah, me. Yeah, I was like, what? And once again, it feels like kind of casting like oh, this is going to be more of a comedy. And watch this the second time. I'm not sure what the director thinks this movie is. It's a lot of different things, and they don't gel well together. And I'm not sure the like. I feel like the director would have an answer. Oh, it's a this. Well, I but wonder I on be why to... did this get made? Uh huh. And and it, to me, there's a thing, and it's like a Joel Schumacher thing, or kind of like Amazing Spider-Man Two, where somebody thinks. This is what comic books are. I am now going to translate what I think comic books are mm-hmm. onto the big screen. Right. And for them, it's like logic doesn't matter. It can be camp. It can be garishly colored. And stuff can be kind of stupid. And it's like, yeah, on a surface level, but it makes you feel it makes you feel like you're watching somebody something that's made by somebody who's not a fan of comics. Right. Um yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I would not. I would not necessarily recommend it. I did watch the Thomas Jane Punisher uh, like a couple weeks before this one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that one's worse, and also okay. has and also has a tone that swings like a pendulum as well. What about Dolph Lundgren? One? Uh, the Dolph Lundgren one is just bad on a completely different <laughs> level. That's. I think we can easily say the first. Se- I-, I think the first season on Netflix of the show is the best adaptation of this character by a country mile. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I, yeah, that's because yeah. it t- actually takes it se- the character seriously. It treats it like 
uh, actual vet with PTSD and deals with those issues and why is he doing this? And it actually brings pathos to the story in a non annoying way here. It's like, it's it, the way they handle the pathos is cartoonish, just mm-hmm. like everything else. The one thing I recommend this, I agree. It moves super quick. It's just grotesquely horror driven. Like the, the, he brutalizes, brutally murders these people oh, visually yeah. on screen. In, in physically impossible ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's absurd, but I get why some people would enjoy this more. I don't know. I think for me, yeah, it was just one of those. We weren't to the, the MCU golden age yet. So we were still feeling like, why is it that almost every superhero movie that comes out is just the same garbage with someone who clearly has no respect for this material? I was working at uh, Cinemark at the time of this release. It was a Christmas 2008 release. So mm-hmm. it was the first comic book movie to come on the heels after Iron Man and Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and having that glimpse of like what the movies could be and that like one-two punch of Marvel DC that summer. Right. And then having Punisher come out was just like, oh, guys, uh, here like, we go again. Yeah. And, and as well, it was really misguided for them to release this movie at Christmas time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, not a, not, I mean, other than the pretty red and green lights, it's a very <laughs> colorful movie, but, uh, yeah, it's not a, not a good Christmas feel good movie. Uh, and this just ports over all the extras from the original Blu-ray release. There's nothing really new here, uh, except for the fact that now it's in 4K. And like I said, it is a, like, you know, a very colorful film. So 4K might be the right way to watch it. I don't know. If you like it, it seems like this is one of those movies that would be good in fact, to own that way. Now, let's move to something uh, a little more crazy, <laughs> and that is a film I've been... It's the sequel to one of my favorite horror films of all time, and I've always meant to watch it, but always been scared off by all the people saying, this is the worst movie ever made. And when I, got, I didn't even ask for it, they sent it to me on Blu-ray, this is Exorcist 2, The Heretic, which for Halloween I've renamed one of my Twitter pages, uh, Christopher L. Cox to the heretic. (laughs) Um, I was really like just prepared to be super bored by this. And this movie's a lot of things, but I didn't think it was boring at all. (laughs) Um, It's an odd decision. It's from a director who's known for making really odd movies. John Borman, who of course did Zardoz, which is Mm. kind of a cult classic because of just how fucking weird it is that. And a lot of people who like seeing Sean Connery run around in a a bikini for a long time. Um, but it returns with it, a couple years later with Linda Blair. She's you know all healed up, I suppose, but she's in a inst- regularly going into an institute where they're they're trying to study her and her experience. Um, meanwhile, you're following a priest uh, played by Richard Burton, Philip Lamont, who is struggling with his faith um, after a failed attempt to exercise a possessed South American girl who healed the, who had the power to heal the sick, uh, and she dies during that. Uh, and he decides he is basically the the church is kind of turning against this whole thing and starting to go like, yeah, we don't really not really sure we believe in demons possessing people anymore. And he's kind of left out in the cold on that. But you think this is going to be a sequel about Reagan getting possessed again. And it's weird that in some ways it feels like she didn't even necessarily need to be in this movie. <laughs> you know, she's there through the whole thing. But, like, most of it is about Father Lamont and his, the stuff with his guilt about Africa and him having spiritual journeys and him trying to track down the demon Pazuzu from the first movie. Yeah. Um, and trying to create a bigger mythology around it. And it's so goofy and weird and, 
like goes so many strange places that I can't say I didn't enjoy watching it. But yeah, it is a bad movie, and it's never not once scary. No, like, not even close. Like, never. It's like it doesn't even try. Moment. Yeah, that that part is the part that may be the weirdest. And and the other thing too is you have those Pazuzu moments, but God is Mercedes McCambridge missed. Oh, she's yeah. so missed. Every time Pazuzu says something or they recreate flashbacks from the original Exorcist, right? The voice that they have is so lame, just yeah. lame, and it makes you really, really treasure the performance that Mercedes McCambridge gave in the first Exorcist film as as the possessed voice, right? Um, oh no, yeah, I forgot. Louise Fletcher is the the, the psychologist running yeah. this institute, who of course is a wonderful actress. Um, but they don't really give her a lot of interesting stuff to do here. And they don't ever explain, like, what it is that that place is. It has, like, yeah, children that are, like, um, like uh, mentally impaired children, but also Reagan, who shows up there. there it, it, it doesn't... It, I don't feel like it never adequately explained how long she'd been going, why she was there, yeah. other than, I mean... Other than she did have the trauma in the past, but even that is framed oddly in the movie because Louise Fletcher, who seems to be running the show, doesn't think that she did have anything, so then why is she there in the first place? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I found this to be of a, of a type from the 70s. If the first one is very satanic panic, this one <laughs> had more in common with movies like Audrey Rose. Sure. Uh, or even to, even a little bit, you see it a little bit in Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers where there's like a, a turning of the tide against like self-help, like weird new age self-help methods. Mm -hmm. um, and you see that, uh, the movie that reminded me the most of this was Audrey Rose, if you've never, if you've ever seen that movie. It's been a while, but a, yeah. A girl has psychic powers, but most of the movie, even though it's kind of advertised as a horror movie, most of the movie is about this little girl in a facility that they're kind of doing experiments so on to see if they can draw out the powers. The Fury is yeah. another one, or the reincarnation of Peter Proud, experiments yeah. with that same stuff. There's stuff in it that to me didn't feel like it was coming from a, a place of a typical demon possession movie, but, but a very specific type of 70s horror. Yeah. Um, and so th there's a lot of that in it, um, that kind of like... They have her going through hypnosis, and there's these extended sequences of her sort of mind-melding with the priest yeah. so that he can get clues to Pazuzu's background. Um, so it certainly, it certainly felt of a type. Um, I watched... I did not watch both cuts. Yeah, there's Apparently, two different cuts the here. reaction was so strong to it that Borman went back and made it shorter. Yeah. He actually removed a bunch of stuff. I watched the original theatrical release. I, I think I did, um, too, yeah. I never found any of it. I'd also heard that it was like laughably bad. Yeah. I never thought it got. I mean, short of James Earl Jones in a weird moth costume, right? I never, I never saw anything that I thought was like. I mean, I mean like so camp. It, 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 it never reached a point of camp for me. So here's my argument. I thought about that a lot. Yeah. Because I agree with you. I don't think that. It, I don't think it is. It's bad. It's it's a miscalculation like crazy. But I never thought it was so bad. You're like, this is a riot. You got to see this. And I think part of the problem is that we live in a world now where there's 8 billion film critics from all different walks of life. Back then, there wasn't, and they were not being subjected to tons of horror films. They were not sitting through or writing reviews for the really bad movies. This was a super wide-release, heavily promoted film that they all saw, and to them, it was laughable. And the fact that, like, why would you ever think about even releasing this thing wide? It's a joke. I mean, obviously, you and I both have seen hundreds of films that are mm. much dumber than The Exorcist yeah. 2 is, and sometimes more laughable. Things, sometimes, like, reviews and opinions become like a meme, mm -hmm. where they're repeated so much that you just 
just assume that that's the truth of it. Right. I think this movie is a terrible Exorcist sequel and a mediocre 70s kind of self-help psychological horror. Yeah, I, I would I, agree with that completely. Yeah. I mean, The Exorcist 3 is essential, I think. I think that's a great movie. I, I That's the movie I wish had been the original sequel. It's mm. so good. This is... I, I Yeah. I mean, I, I remember hearing things like, oh, it's just a movie of just flashbacks from the original film, and not as much as I, as has been advertised. It's in there. That's part of it. But they're kind of, they are, in fact, using those. It's not like one of those episodes of a sitcom where they're like, hey, remember when this happened? It's yeah. not like that. It's not Hills Have Eyes 2. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. They're, they're just using moments as fulcrum points to actually bring in new exposition into the plot and move it to where it wants to go next. Um but yeah, there's the original cut and the original home video cut, which is the shorter version, which the audio commentary they have with director John Borman and project consultant Scott Bosco. There's a 20-minute interview with uh, with act uh, Linda Blair, which is actually, I watched the whole thing, is very fun to watch. She's, watch al- she's always been one of those people who's great to listen to her talk about her career. Uh, there's an interview with editor Tom Priestley. Um, on the home video cut, there's audio commentary with Mike, Mike White of the Projection Booth blog. I did not listen to that. Uh, and then there's a bunch of still galleries and trailers. Not a lot of extras, but you wouldn't expect there would be, even with Scream Factory putting this thing out. But I still think if you've never tried it, if you've always heard the stuff about it, and you're like, yeah, why would I bother? It's worth seeing. I mean, just don't expect it to be in any way close to as good a film or even scary as a film as The Exorcist is. Like you said, it's an okay 70s sort of like psychic laboratory biofeedback, yeah. like sci-fi film almost, yeah. you know. Uh, and then we have Molly. This one is weird. Um, oh. <laughs> um, apparently, this team of people who did this film have done a couple different movies together with largely the same cast, including this lead actress, Julia Batalan, mm-hmm. who plays the titular role of Molly. This being her first big, like, okay, now you're the star. But it's a post-apocalyptic, very low-budget indie action film that spends two acts... Seemingly having no idea where it's going, following this girl around the wasteland that I guess has like telekinetic push powers that she only uses when she gets sufficiently upset. Yeah. And then the last third deciding it wants to be a hardcore, like straight up enclosed single cut action film, which is honestly not bad. I, I genuinely went for the low, low budget and inexperience of these people. It's not bad at all, that third act. But. After two really dreary first two acts, I'm like, where is this film going? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I don't want to... I don't want to pick on the nerdy kid here. <laughs> the, the, so, you, you and I are both geeks, and there's like... Comic-Con and and being a comic geek, there's a whole world of, like, fan films and, like, LARP fighting. Mm -hmm. And to me, this felt like a fan film for a property I was not familiar with. Mm. And the fighting was very... The fighting was of that kind of decisively, obviously choreographed LARP-style fighting where it's like, then we do this, then we yeah. do this, then we do this, then we do this. But, we do but this, without the benefit of an editor or director who knows how to shoot a film yeah. with choreographed action scenes. The performances like a fan film 
almost everyone feels miscast. They all feel like they're about 10 years younger than the characters they're being asked to play, which gave it like a fan film feel. Yeah. And um, the actress looks like she's 14, which makes it even more awkward when there's a scene where she takes her clothes well, off. The main bad guy. I was like, I, I was just like, that guy is desperately miscast. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> he, it, it has some, it, it's rough. I can certainly see if you have a, a fondness for scrappy, no-budget indies where you see people making the best with what they have. Mm. I could certainly see how that would be inspiring, and you would go like, wow, what creativity these people have to take a little bit and make a whole movie. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Did I like that movie? Not really. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 I was sticking with it. Like I was like, I really I want to support this scrappy underdog because I don't... I don't think I've seen a, a really indie post-apocalyptic action movie since the 80s, you know? And it was like, you know, since Dead End Drive-In and shit like that. And I'm like, okay, what you got? I'll, and like I said, I think the third act, it really does... A future world? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, but not actually... It's one of those films that's designed to look like it's a scrappy little indie, right. but it's financed by a big production company, so whatever. God, fuck that movie, by the way. <laughs> um, this is better than Future World. I'd watch this again a thousand times over Future World. It was more tolerable than Future World. Yeah. Future World is up its own ass. This... Is like you said, it feels like a fan film. They're obviously loving what they're doing, but nobody seems to really know what they're doing. Um, I don't know. It, it It's kind of a mess. It's weird that they say they're making a sequel, like it sets up for a sequel at the end. You're like, that seems a little overconfident. Um, and on the Blu-ray, this is from Artsploitation, uh, has a feature-length commentary with the directors as well as a 30-minute making of featurette. Like I said, they're like, they're certain they, they struck gold here and... I'm pretty sure they're wrong. Uh, our acquaintance, Ed Travis, uh, uh, said it's one of the best films he's seen this year. It's in What? A, yeah. He said he has not seen a film with action that good in years, and it will definitely be making his top ten. And I was like, I, I normally, I don't, when people are like, I loved this, I don't normally show up in their thread and go like, I didn't love this. <laughs> yeah. But with this one, I just felt like I... There were so many people that were like, oh, thanks, Ed. I'll definitely put this on my must-watch list. That I was like, I have to save these people. I, right, I have right. to say something. It's your responsibility. So, so I popped in and was like, I, this one did not work on me at all. Sorry. Yeah, yeah I, Best action? What movies have you been watching? Like, I mean, none. I, every time someone says something that like like that where you're just like that taken aback, I always think of the scene in High Fidelity with Jack Black. Oh, wait. Is she in a coma? <laughs> Like, wow, I don't even know what to say. Yeah, obviously neither one of us were really fans of this thing. And, like, the whole power thing that was, like, what was that even about? Like, she's got a power. It's like, oh, because, like, the bad guy injects people to make them into monster mutants to fight in his fighting pit for reasons that are completely unclear. And... When it they did it, I guess they did it to her, and instead of it having that effect, she got psychic powers. But you're all like, "What?" It just none of it fits together at all. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's go to uh, another re-release on coming out now for the first time on 4K. Another film I was glad to revisit it because when I originally saw this, I had mixed feelings. I, I, I liked it, but I had mixed feelings about American Psycho. I partially probably because I, I just recently read the book, which I despise. Like, barely managed to finish the book. I hated it so much. Um, 
Although my wife and I love to disagree about that because she, that's like one of her favorite books of all time. And I'm like, you are a sick, sick person. (laughs) That gerbil, gerbil have a trail scene. Did you ever read the book? Uh -uh. All I know about the book is that it goes into excruciating detail about the like accoutrements of his home. Yes, it does. Way and about, um, I believe it's because the movie is like Huey Lewis and Genesis, and I forget who it is in the book. It's a different band. But anyway, this was adapted from the Bret Easton Ellis 1991 novel with Christian Bale in a relatively early role for him coming in playing the said uh, American psycho, Patrick Bateman, who is the ultimate yuppie taking place in 1987 in New York. He's an investment banker. He is about the most shallow human being that could possibly exist. So shallow, he's not even sure if he's a real human being at all. He regularly questions his own do I have a soul? Do I, is there anything about me that's not a robot? He's at, there's a point you're like, is he killing people just to see if he feels something? Or is he way past that point where he's just killing them because there's no part of him that cares at all? And it's unbalanced to me because first off the movie takes the tact maybe he's never killing anyone at all maybe all of this is just in his head which becomes more like pronounced later in the film like maybe not none of this is happening there's also a weird take of sort of a brazil almost type feel at one point where they're like yeah but because you're so rich and powerful you're allowed to do whatever you want so nobody cares there's a lot of mixed signals going on, especially in the third act here for me. What sells this movie for me is Patrick Bateman's performance, or Christian Pale's performance. I think he's terrific. He has this great balance between comedy and and just being, I don't know if chilling is the right word, but like fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the sequence where he, with his first kill in the movie where he's kind of like dancing around in the raincoat that's been gift a billion times is is so downright funny as hell to watch. But it is kind of a brutal film um, with some performances from a lot of young actors who are getting almost getting their start here, uh, like very early in their career, like Reese, Wither- Reese Witherspoon, Chloe Savigny, Justin Thoreau, Josh Lucas, uh, Jared Leto. Um, William Defoe is in here in kind of a weird role as a detective who's investigating the, the, the case. Uh, Reggie Cathy, um, who has a small role as a homeless man who he kills. I don't know, man. I still don't. After watching it again, I'm glad I watched it. I, I can't say I didn't enjoy it on some level, but I don't have the same passion for it a lot of people seem to. Yeah. I had never seen it. Um, oh, wow. Okay. This was a first for me. Uh, and I don't think – I think people undersold how funny it actually is. Mm. Um, that business card scene in particular was one that I thought was really, really funny. Just right. the tension of the business card scene where they're talking about paper stocks and fonts and, you know, textures. And I, I thought that stuff was really, really good. I do think it got wobbly in the third act. Mm. I could see what they were going for. I don't know that any of that, like, is he or isn't he stuff really worked for me. Mm-hmm. But overall, I really enjoyed it. And the other thing, too, that I, that kind of struck me is it was really – I think in retrospect, sort of a star-making turn for Bale. You know, he'd been working since, like, what, Empire of the Sun is, like, his first movie? Maybe. Like, not sure. Um, and and to me, it was like, it's such an odd role to be one that would be, uh, that would turn someone into, like, a bankable movie star. Right. And also the fact that the movie, while not, like, a huge, huge blockbuster hit, was a success, and certainly a success on home video. It was Empire um, of the Sun, by the way. Yeah, it feels like such an off-putting movie. Typically, it's been my experiences that that audiences um, 
have general audiences have trouble with movies that have wild tonal shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why horror comedies tend to get cult audiences instead of like general audiences. Um, and with that, I thought it was I th- it thought it was an interesting case study of a film that was able to swing tones radically and still keep audiences aboard for mm-hmm. whatever reason. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. And again, I, if I would have known how funny it was, I would have watched it way sooner. My assumption about the movie was watch this rich, crazy guy kill women for an hour and a half. And I was like, I don't really want to do that. Like I have right. no desire to do that. And in reality, it's kind of a different movie. It's a, it's a sort of a blistering send up of, 80s uh, yuppies and greed and Wall Street and it's that a, sort of it's stuff. A, well, it's a black com- yeah. comedy, yeah. to be sure, um, and directed by Mary Heron, one of a few examples up to this point of a female director for horror uh, who is well known for her very feminist movies uh, like uh, I Shot Andy Warhol and The Notorious Betty Page take a very like women-centric slant. And both those films, by the way, I think are great. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Too bad the sequels. Uh, like an uber mess. I never saw it, the Mila Kunis one. Yeah, well, maybe yeah. we're seeing just because of William Shatner, but you yeah, know. I I really enjoyed American Psycho, and I I um I would like to see Mary Heron work on that. Um, well, she has kind of worked on that level, which is sort of like sort of like on the on this like the larger end of the indie side where her stuff has like a name, but. Again, it goes back to like you have these female directors that would be completely capable uh, at making the same kind of movies that, if not better than some of the male directors that get bigger and better opportunities. Um, it's like, come on, Jason Blum, yeah. <laughs> here's one right here. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but but yeah, I um, I did not also know that all those people are in it, which is interesting because it was like this parade of like, oh. I didn't know Reese Witherspoon was in this. You, you know, recognize even Justin Thoreau was in this. Even people aren't necessarily big names. They're people you've seen on a yeah. hundred TV shows and stuff. You're like, oh yeah, I know that that guy was like that character in four seasons of that show. Yeah, it is one of those films that it is like always great when a movie like this you can revisit or see it for the first time and having no idea that you're like, oh wow, everybody got famous after this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this comes with a brand new commentary by the co-writer and the director, so that was never before on the previous edition. Although it does, in fact, port over all those uh, uh, special features from the oh, original. Should watch that. Is it a conversation or is it like one person talks and then the other person talks and I'm they not, edit it? Together. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then there is brand new forty. 8 minute 53 second from book to screen which is a bunch of archival interviews that have been put together with crew members and 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 critics and various other people um that I'm hearing that it's reported at being 1080 but the one critic I'm reading talking about is saying it it looks pretty upscaled to me um but that is the you know even though it's archival footage it's for the first time put together into one mini feature like this but yeah it's got all the older supplements this is actually a pretty solid uh like release and if you've never checked out American Psycho and and probably cuz like I said the reason you're saying yeah. it just seems like a grim movie I would not enjoy it actually is like more of a comedy than it's not yeah, it was it completely uh it exceeded my expectations. Well, next we have Scarlet Diva. This is a film that has I admit has largely been on my radar just because of the degree to which I'm a fan of her of Asia Argento's father Dario, and she of course has worked on many of his films uh, sometimes as his leading lady. Um and she since went on to her own uh was 
an actress in a ton of films uh, and then later sort of transitioned into a writer director like her father. Uh, this film, Scarlet Diva, which was made in 2000 by her, it was her first time directing and writing is kind of about, I mean, it's obviously deeply autobiographical without being exactly autobiographical. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, this character that Asia is playing in the film called Anna Batista isn't exactly Asia Argento, even though uh, even her actual real life mother is in the film playing her mother, Daria Nicolodi. Um, but it's so close as to make little or no difference. There's a lot of commentary about her problems with drugs. There's a character in here who clearly is Harvey Weinstein, yeah. um, which commenting on it after all this time, she was like, well, the main difference between my character in this film and wh- what happened in real life is in the film, he was trying to rape me and I ran away. In real life, I was young and stupid and I just gave in. Um, and she's obviously talked about this a lot just recently even. I think this is a film and it's filmed with very low budget and kind of like, you know, messy looking film stock. Uh, It's not terribly well-made film, but it is more, it's fascinating as an artifact and like a sort of record of what she went through in like sort of (laughs) than anything else. But I definitely can't see sitting through this again. It was, I thought it was kind of a, it, it was, it was slow burns, not the right word. Just nothing is really happening. That's all that interesting. It just kind of ambles around, you know? Yeah. I thought it felt like a nineties indie. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, there was something about it that felt, it's weird how, you know, in time you get context for the way certain things are. And it's like, when I watched it, if I would have watched it when it came out, I don't know that I would have been like, this feels like a 90s indie. (laughs) It needed the time and distance for me to be able to go, this feels so specifically of a certain type of movie that they were making at a certain specific time. Mm -hmm. Even by coming out in 2000, it probably felt dated then because it really feels like something that would have come out in like 93 or 94, Mm. kind of like that sort of resurgence of that Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Soderbergh era of like anybody can make a film, you know, Robert Rodriguez, that sort of like, it felt like something from that time period where all you need is a camera and go and shoot. Right. Um, I found the film, uh, it felt honest to me, which probably kept me through it. It felt, while it wasn't necessarily like anything I could relate to, I thought it felt authentic and I thought it felt honest mm-hmm. and that's what kept me kind of compelled through it. And I also thought that it kind of unwittingly lets you see into a portal that gives you some kind of understanding as to how Asia Argento has now ended up in the situation she's in where it's come out that as an adult, one of the children she directed, you know, when he was a teenager, that they had a sexual relationship and he has come out and said, Hey, even though she's coming out against sex abuse from people in power, she did this exact thing to me. Right. And I think that there's almost like a Rosetta Stone quality to Scarlet Diva that you can see how the cycles of abuse and power continue, you know, would make themselves manifest in her life simply out of having that taken away from her before. Uh, Like finding herself as, oh, this is a way, even if it's subconsciously, something that's a way of someone going, I can do that because that was done to me and like, yeah, you know, I want those feelings of power over somebody else. Even if it's not in the forefront of your mind, you can, and that's, and it's the way things happen. It's why people that are sexually abused become sexual abusers. It's Mm -hmm. why people that are, you know, that 
that are physical wife beaters. Yeah. yeah, physical abusers go on to become physical abusers. Oh, yeah, it is that sort of like this is what this is the way I understand power dynamics to work. And so when I want to exercise a power dynamic, this is what happens. Mm-hmm. And I think that this movie provides some insight into that, even if it even if it predates those events. I still think that you can believe that the events that you see in this movie would cause a creation. Uh, this of of a situation where uh you know even her as a director would turn around and manipulate a situation yeah and you know i mean like i said right from the beginning the fact that she's an actress who has done a lot of erotic type stuff and horror type stuff which was very true mm-hmm. is trying to get out of that and wants to become this person yeah. that made this film and yet this film itself is kind has a lot of erotic and even slight horror elements well there to and it. there is something to it to me they're the strongest thread in the story of the movie is this thought that it doesn't matter how slutty I am on screen or in my personal life, you still don't have the right to abuse my body. Yes. Whether it's the drug stuff, whether it's the director, because there's a scene as well where she she's given, uh, she thinks it's Special K and it's like laced with some hallucinogenics or something like that. And I felt like the driving theme of the movie was very much like, yeah, it may look like I'm anything goes, but I'm the one that determines whether or not I'm anything goes. You right. don't get to ter- determine that for me. Uh, and and again, that felt honest. It felt authentic. To your point, would I want to watch it again? I don't know that I would ever want to watch it again, but I may have liked it more than you. Okay. Yeah. I, I, um, by the way, Joe Coleman, the artist, is the one who plays the, the Harvey Weinstein analog mm-hmm. in the film. Um and there's a weird subplot where she's in love with some kind of rock star from Australia yeah. that I'm not sure if that was supposed to be a real person or if that's he's an analog for someone or not. I was kind of reading about it. And I couldn't find anything that specifically said who that was supposed to be, if anyone. But that whole thing kind of feels like it goes nowhere. Not really sure what that was about or what she was even trying to say with it, but it keeps coming up. Anyway, like I said, it's messy, but... And certainly, if you're interested in her and her story, this is the closest we're going to get to a biopic. I guess. Yeah, and there's a there's a booklet inside by uh, by our acquaintance Kayla Janice. Oh, really? Uh, as well, yeah. She wrote all the liner notes. So there's a lot of there's a lot of like detailed critical information in the liner notes as well. Well, there's also a commentary with uh, Asia Argento here. Two commentaries, in fact, um, which. Uh, they, there's a lot of overlap, but the main dis- difference is they're done in different times. One was just – she just recorded this year and one was recorded back in 2004. Uh, there is um, eight minutes with uh, Joel Coleman who, uh, like I said, played the Weinstein stand-in, uh, who's a painter and sculptor, um, who's basically just showing off his art here. There's a original release interview for 17 minutes with Asia Argento. There is a eight-minute – um, uh, making of St- Scarlet Diva. There's the, the original trailers and promos, and then some trailers for some other films by Film Movement who put this out. But yeah, it's interesting, but hardly essential. Um, next, we have Barry season one, which a lot of people are saying is the best single uh, season of TV to come out this year. But then again, they hadn't seen The Haunting of Hill House yet. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to tease you. You need to watch The Haunting of Hill House. I'm too. two episodes in. Okay, keep going. Okay. Um, Barry, did you get to watch this? Did yeah. you have to, okay. Barry is a HBO dark comedy TV series uh, created by Alec Berg and Bill Hader and Starling, starring Hader as a Midwest hitman who has traveled uh, to L.A. at the behest of his handler, played by the always funny and, and goofy Stephen Root, to kill somebody who is a local struggling actor. 
and finds himself in the midst of trying to get close to him, sucked into his little rehearsing acting troupe, uh, like a teaching group that is run by Henry Winkler, who, by the way, is like the secret weapon of this whole thing. He's so good in this and ends up falling in love with the acting. Although you're always like, it feels like, like to some level, Winkler is just kind of manipulating the situation because he wants to get another student and make money because nothing about haters. You know, the only time he thinks maybe haters got something is when hater is not acting, when he's talking to him about his real life and his tr- troubles and he gets emotional. It's a funny gimmick, but those points of like, are, are the points that I feel like in later seasons the show is going to have trouble coming to terms with and finessing what's going to happen when he actually has to try and perform for real and something more seriously yeah. and he's just not able to pull it off. Um, but there's a lot of interesting characters here. A lot of people, actors I didn't, I, I was not familiar with, like Sarah Goldberg, who plays Sally Reed, who's the love, the, the sort of like floofy love interest who's who's in the group for Bill. Uh there's a lot of people here I think are are fantastic. The guy who and I'm blanking on his name, uh maybe it's Mark Ivany, I'm not sure, but he plays um uh one of the main killers on Gotham who plays kind of the head of this like European Eastern European mob. He is a riot in this thing. Like every time he's on screen, the way he's doing things and their whole way they talk cuz you keep thinking they they they're set up to be a caricature of Eastern European mobsters, and then everything they actually say is always sort of so like bizarre with that context. Yeah. They play them as actual human beings, yeah, <laughs> with real questions that are like, I don't know. I thought this show was a riot. What, what did you think of it? I really enjoyed it. Okay, I really enjoyed it. I actually think it was. Um, it kind of reminded me of when I watched Breaking Bad. Uh, it had a similar. Obviously, Breaking Bad is more serious than Barry, mm-hmm. but there was stuff about Barry that reminded me of the lighter episodes of Breaking Bad, um, and and like the humorous moments in Breaking Bad. There was something specific about that tone that I thought Barry kind of met sometimes. Um, I was also kind of fascinated by the complexity of the characters, not just of like the Chechnyan, uh, Chechnyan of, of, of the hitman, but of. Um, the main female lead is also a character that, like, you don't... You see this... It's like a type you see on shows like this. Mm-hmm. And she ends up, like... <laughs> I was... I was, I could not, for a little while, kind of wrap my head around how shallow she was about certain things. And then just kind of chalked it up to it being, like, that's... Literally, like, they're making a three-dimensional character. I don't have to like all the dimensions. But, for instance, when her friend gets cast in the show, and then her friend is like, I specifically asked for you to give you a leg up. And she basically throws, like, a 24-hour tantrum about that situation. And I'm like, that's so dumb. Like, why are you doing that? But not because it felt unrealistic. It felt like something, something someone would do, but it was also really, really petty. Right. And that's when the show kind of broke the mold on her for me a little bit, where I was like, oh, she has a really shallow side. And then from there on in other episodes, you would see it flare back up. Well, every everybody is not a good guy in this thing. And it makes it that much weirder that in some level, Hater feels the most moralistic of everyone here. In some ways, he is the one guy observing from the outside everyone else's behavior who seems to be aware of how absurd it all is. Mm-hmm. But he plays it so deadpan. 
And he's aware how absurd his own situation is. He doesn't want to be doing this anymore. And it is sort of like a, a comedy of, of ethics in some ways. It's not as on the nose about it as, say, something like The Good Places, which, yeah. by the way, this stars a blank on her name, the actress who plays the the, the, the robot from uh, from uh, uh, mm-hmm. for The Good Places. And also well. uh, the, the girl now in season three that plays the uh, brain doctor was also in very... In season three of... Of Good Place. Of Good Place. Oh, 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 um... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Blanking on her name too. But, um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's one of those shows. It's just hard to pin this down. And I think this first season is, is tight. It nails it, but it also makes me wonder. It's got enough things here that I'm like, how long can you keep this up for? You know, there's a lot of stuff they're going to have to explore that I don't know how they're going to explore it. There's stuff on the surface that it's a weird, it's weird to say this because there's stuff on the surface that when I heard the description of the show, I thought, that sounds a lot like Get Shorty, like mm. the movie Get Shorty. And I watched it and I was like, it's not really that much like Get Shorty, which is strange because I do think it's like an Elmore Leonard novel. And even and Elmore Leonard wrote Get Shorty. So I'm like, but there's aspects of it that are more. Get Shorty decides that it definitely wants to be a comedy and plants its feet there and doesn't want any of the upsetting stuff to throw off whatever tone it's going for. Mm -hmm. In Leonard's books, that concern is not there. Leonard's books are going to be brutally violent and also have moments that are hysterical. And Barry, to me, reminded me more of Elmore Leonard's novels than Get Shorty did, even though... All, Even though, again, it's based on an Elmore Leonard book. All of the heightened reality type absurd comedy is there, and yet when this movie has something violent happen, you really feel it. It mm-hmm. feels hor- just horrific yeah. what's happening. Um, yeah, I think this is great, and this is the one that we're giving away a copy of. I have a set. They've <gasps> only put this out on DVD, unfortunately, which is weird. Everyone's like, wasn't this one of the big hits of the year on television? I mean, every critic was putting it in their top ten. What? What did not enough people watch it, or is HBO just pulling way back on home release stuff? But it is. It comes with a digital copy as well, and it's got two bonus features on it: the world of Barry and inside the episodes. So it's not an elaborate, a lot of elaborate stuff. But honestly, guys, if you don't have HBO or HBO Go and you haven't seen this, trust me, this is the thing you're going to want. I would also say to anybody that gets it, use the digital code uh, and watch the HD version. Okay. Um, the one thing that I that was kind of. Not upsetting, but a little disappointing was the overall like quality of the uh, on the DVD. On yeah. the DVD, I thought was just okay, especially since you can watch so much HBO content in high definition. Right, that it felt like, why am I watching this in like 720? Right. Um. So I would recommend that anybody that whoever does win the DVD, um, make sure you use that digital code. It's gonna it, it is it should look it should look noticeably better. I haven't seen it in HD, but it was a case of me going like. I wish this looked better while I was watching the disc. So if you do want to win, the explanation of how to do it is at the top of the show. We explained it at the beginning. I'm not explaining it again. You're going to have to go back and listen to it. So I know I'm a villain. The last thing we're talking about this week is a movie made by a mutual friend of ours, which is going to make this conversation difficult for at least one of us. (laughs) That movie is called Bloodfest uh, by Owen Egerton. 
who has in fact been on one of us a, a couple different times as a guest on things and, and claims that eventually he'll have time to be back on again. <laughs> Every time I see him, he's like, I promise, man, I'll find out. I'm going to come on again. I'm like, yeah, you're busy, Owen. I get it. Um, this is his second movie that uh, he wrote and directed. He did a previously a horror film you can see on Shudder called Follow that I also really liked, but a lot of other people I know did not care for. I think I'm like, I'm his biggest fan or something because I like both of these movies quite a lot, but they both had were not across the board popular with, uh, with even his friends. Um, but this one as well, I got to do a fun behind the scenes visit. If you go on one of us.net's YouTube page, there is a, a, a whole, a, a really fun video we did for behind the scenes, especially the sequences I shot with Owen, where he was, I was like, can we be goofy? Can we set up some jokes? And he was like, yeah, let's totally do that. Cause this has been a super boring day of interviews. <laughs> so we had fun doing it and we got to talk to uh, Seychelle Gabriel, who is lovely and charming and just like one of those people I feel like if I had been her age and we'd grown up together we would she would have been like my best female friend like yeah. you had that sort of nerd because she's super nerdy but also super hot yeah. you're like yeah um, but uh, this is the, the story why don't you tell the story here this one I've told the story of all of them you uh, the story of this one is that there is a um, there's a big outdoor Halloween haunted house kind of interactive amusement park walkthrough called blood fest. And we have like a core group of characters. The, the main character is a kid who, uh, the, he saw his mother get attacked by a slasher when he was a, a young child. And he's grown up since then to sort of embrace horror movies. It helps him deal with the trauma. His father is at odds with him because he doesn't feel like that's healthy. By the way, Robbie um, Kay is the actor, the young actor. Tate Donovan is the, uh, the, uh, the father. Yeah. So, so Robbie Kay and his friends, including, uh, that kid from Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jacob, Battalion, uh, Battalion. Batal- I don't know. Jacob. Anyways. Yeah. They all get together and he, he kind of sneaks out and goes to, uh, this blood fest. And when they arrive at Bloodfest, it quickly they quickly learn that um, all of the fake haunted house spoopy attractions that they're going to see yeah. are all 100% real and uh, kind of lorded over by Owen Egerton himself playing like this mastermind character who's manipulating different parts of the park as... They try to seek shelter and survive and hide and that sort of stuff. Right. With the, the oft-repeated rule in these type of movies, those of you who actually watch enough horror and know its rules might have a chance of surviving. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, they've got to use their their experiences being horror geeks to parse their way out of situations that are all specifically based on – very specifically based on familiar horror, either scenarios or very specific horror films. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I – I, well, I've watched this twice now. Um, uh, I think one of the things I enjoy about it so much is that the there's a sequence where they're like, well, wait, how did you do – there's like zombies that appear to be actual zombies and there's vampires that appear to be actual vampires and all this. And he's explaining how he did that. Like through science, he created zo- actual zombies and actual vampires. He's like, what about the clowns? Like, oh, I just found those on Craigslist, <laughs> which sounded – you know, reasonable, <laughs> probably tr- something you could actually do. Um, but this is a humor that doesn't always stick. And, and if I do have a problem with it, it's that he doesn't quite, he doesn't get the violent scenes, right? They're all edited clumsily and the gore is not terrific. 
Um, but I do really enjoy the interplay between these characters. And I thought on the whole, the comedy works here. Um, I had fun with it and I would even watch a sequel to this. Uh, if you watch the extra scenes, there's in fact a deleted sequence. That's a sort of end of credits extended bet that, that insinuates that yes, they could easily come back and do a sequel for this. But I know that you're not exactly on the same page with me on this one. Not every movie's for everybody. Um, (laughs) you know, and, 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 uh, I'm not necessarily like heavily involved in the Rooster Teeth community, so I don't know how yeah. much of it they produced this. Film. Yeah, and I don't know how much of it, based on their previous content. Rooster Teeth makes a lot of content that plays to the Rooster Teeth audience, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's this. I don't know if that's my disconnect with this film. If it, if I was a Rooster Teeth person, would I get more in jokes? Would I see actors who I'm like, oh, I know them from. The stream yeah. that I watch. And Some that of those sort of stuff. people are in this. Like Barbara Dunkelman has a big role. Um, and, and there's a whole deleted sequence with Gus that yeah. like, uh, but usually stuff like that's video game stuff. And I, there was no detectable video game shit in here. But then again, I don't, I play games. But I don't obsess also, over them. Yeah. And there's, I mean, I didn't know if they were like, you know, talent from other rooster teethy things. Yeah. I don't know. Either. Yeah. I did. I, there are a couple of my friends and acquaintances that are in the movie, uh, specifically in the tower with Owen, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I, um, I don't, I don't know. I, it, this is tough. You I, I get it. It's like the, for a while when, when I was on spill, we had a rule. If we actually were friends with the people that like real friends, the people who made the film, we wouldn't review it. We would say this is out. So, you know, we're not, we're not going to say how we felt about it. One I will say, I will say, I think it's just a matter of a disconnect mm-hmm. it, it, and I would not, I, it would, it would be worse if I was more confident to be able to say, oh, this is bad. Don't watch it. Mm. Which I, which I don't necessarily have that within me. My deal is that just not every movie is for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that this one was for me. I don't know that it, it, I don't, it did not, um, the different elements of it didn't necessarily keep me the whole time. Uh, but I wouldn't dissuade somebody from watching it. And, and compared to like Hellfest, which I also just watched, which was oh, very similar. I was very curious about that. I did not get to see that one. I, I don't think that, I don't think that Hellfest is like heads and tails, uh, you know, better than Bloodfest. Um, I think they're very different beasts. Bloodfest is going, they start the same and then go completely different directions. Yeah. The, the kind of beginning of like, oh, we're all excited. We're going to go to this event. We go to this event. Oh my God. It turns out to be real. And from there on, Bloodfest kind of goes the Cabin in the Woods direction, and Hellfest sort of goes like the standard slasher movie direction. Um, and there's a lot of big ideas and a lot going on in Bloodfest that I I feel like I personally wish would have been facilitated with the bigger budget. Hmm. More time and more budget is, is the, are the enemies of this film. I think that both of those could have worked towards really bringing the core ideas that Owen had to life. Hmm. But I don't know that... I felt like it reached its full potential in that way. I do agree that that certainly, yeah, you can feel the lower budget. You can feel the relative inexperience of like Rooster Teeth Productions at this point, for sure. And there's points of frustration. This should have been better than it is. But as compared to Molly as a scrappy indie horror, oh, I think this of is the two scrappy indie better. horrors we have, I would recommend <laughs> Bloodfest over over Molly by a by a country mile, just right? On an opinion level, I mean, <clears throat> again. I know that there are going to be people that discover this movie and really, really enjoy it. So I wouldn't dissuade anybody from watching it. I, th- I do think it is one of those movies that 
give it a few years and people are going to be like, oh, did you ever see that movie Bloodfest? I really liked that. You know, it's mm-hmm. going to find its cult. Right. Which is way more than a lot of movies can say. And I and I can clearly kind of see that for this movie. Uh, and for bonus features, there's the art and design of Bloodfest, which goes into sort of like how, because you know, there's a lot of prop design, a lot of like the, the tower. Like that. The tower itself is great. I liked the logos and stuff like that. Yeah. I liked that. Yeah. Uh, there's a breakdown of the VFX, which like I said, is not really Top notch. It's it's okay at best. Uh, there's Gus Fest, which is of course Rooster Teeth founder Gus Sarola, who there's a sequence with uh, where it's like, oh, he was trying to get in, he got there thirty seconds too late, and they closed the gate, so he's just sitting outside the whole time while all the shit's going on, and then in the end manages to get in, and it's sort of because at the end of the movie there's a thing with the whole place blowing up that kind of was like, wait, why did it blow up? Well, this explains why, and it's because of Gus. <laughs> um, and there's uh, just a few deleted scenes, and then there's a filmmaker's commentary. One thing I did feel as well, there's a cameo in here with Zach Levi that is so, I mean, that is they literally telegraph it at the beginning of the movie that it's yeah. going to come at some point. And then when it happens, they just don't live up to its potential at all. It's like, oh, this should be fun, and it's over before you know it, and he's never really given anything that fun to do, you know? It's, a, it's kind of, a, it felt like a very misused uh, cameo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that is it for our show this week. I'd like to thank John Golson, of course, for joining me. As always, John, do you want to tell people where they can find you? Right now, you can find me on Comixology, a Halloween Man Bat City special, which is an indie comic about a, a monster superhero. Uh, the Bat City special is all local Austin talent. Drew Edwards, who's a creator and the writer of the special, uh, was just nominated for an Austin Chronicle Best of Austin Award nice. for comics. Um, but that hit Comixology today. So if you do a search for Halloween Man Bat City Special, you can find that uh, on Comixology. There will be print versions available. We're doing a signing at Austin Books and Comics on Halloween night if you if you like a print version and you live locally. But if you don't live locally, uh, that's what I'm pimping right now is, <laughs> is the uh, the comic I'm in. Oh, can I – one more thing. If you live locally, um, I'm doing a reading, a Joe Lansdale uh, story, The Dump, I'm reading on Thursday, October 20 20- – What's Thursday? The 5th. So Thursday, October 25th at 7.30 p.m. at the Institution Theater. Okay. I'll be at the Anything Live Super Special Halloween Show reading The Dump by mm. Joe R. Lansdale. Nice. We love Joe. He's actually, he's been a, a really good friend of the site for yeah, years. Yeah, I knew that, I knew that you liked him and I knew he'd, he'd done stuff with one of us. So I wanted to make sure that if you were, you know, any fans of his listening that live locally want to come hear a spooky story. I will be telling, I will be doing a dramatic reading of The Dump. So. Right on. All right. Well, that is it. Although the, the next episode uh, will be following very close on the heels of this one in terms of release, since I'm literally recording the next one in a half hour from now with the <laughs> other guy. Uh, but thanks for listening, everybody. 